Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guests today are Maria Popova and Oksana Shevel, whose new book, Russia and Ukraine, Entangled Histories, Diverging States, is published today by Polity. Russia and Ukraine have alternative histories and alternative destinies. After the Soviet Union collapsed, depending on who you spoke to, they were either a single people artificially divided and destined for reunification, or one nation with a distinct history, culture, and language serially repressed by a dominant neighbor. The core argument of this new book is that, quote, the root of the difficult Russia-Ukraine relationship is the misaligned understanding of Soviet dissolution as the end of common statehood or as its reinvention. Maria Popova is a Jean Monnet chair and associate professor of political science at McGill University in Montreal. Oksana Shevel is an associate professor of comparative politics at the Department of Political Science at Tufts University in Massachusetts. Welcome both to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Can we begin with uh, how this book came about? So in the introduction, you tell a tale of how Polity talked to the two of you and asked you to combine your post-invasion thoughts into a book. So can you begin by saying what those thoughts were, how Polity came to you, and also how the two of you came to be collaborators in the first place? Maria. Okay. Oksana and I have uh, known each other since uh, graduate school about, wow, at this point, 20 years ago. And when things were escalating towards um, Russia's full-scale invasion, we started uh, first talking about it, then writing short pieces for foreign affairs and foreign uh, Well, we didn't do foreign policy, but uh, Journal of Democracy, we were particularly struck by uh, was the extent to which sort of the the Ukrainian perspective was not well known and well understood. So we we wrote these pieces about uh, how some of the proposed solutions weren't really uh, going to work. And, and then suddenly when the full-scale invasion hit and everybody was so shocked by it, we thought, well, when we think about it, uh, the reasons why Russia invaded and the reasons why Ukraine resisted with such intensity need to be explored. And we thought uh, because both of us have done uh, work both on Russia and on Ukraine uh, for the last 20 years, we were in a good position to to look at both sides of this question. Why the invasion and why the strong resistance? And Polity were interested in, in such a book. Sorry, I was just going to add yeah, to what Maria was saying, I, um, that what this story or one of the kind of dominant stories at the time, and in, in fact, it still um, remains uh, to today a pretty prominent position, uh, was completely overlooking um, in, in both Ukrainian voices and also domestic politics uh, behind this invasion. So the, this emphasis on how it was expansion of NATO and 
Putin's security fears was really dominating a lot of the conversations and analysis at the time. And our book uh, puts much more emphasis on the importance of domestic politics and this what we call divergence um, in domestic uh, politics between the two countries. So that uh, was also you know, part of the motivation to bring that specific set of arguments to the reader. A lot of the books about Ukraine and Russia that have been published since February 2022, central to yours is this concept of what you call an escalatory cycle between the two states. Was this something that you felt hadn't been captured in other books? I think when we uh, came up with this concept um, or, you know, sort of a framing of it, um, I don't think we were specifically comparing our book to other books because at the time when we uh, settled on this argument, um, it was still, you know, pretty early and not that many books were published. But we wanted um, to, um, you know, for the reader, especially this book was not meant just as a strictly academic book. We were um, writing it also for the general reader. We wanted to have sort of short but accurate um, summary of what exactly was it about the domestic politics in the two countries that um, in our um, analysis was very important to understand to understand this war. And that's how this concept of escalatory cycle came around, because uh, the book looks at uh, 30 years. Um, in fact, it deals even with more recent history, but the bulk of the analysis is this divergence over the 30-year period since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And really, when we talk about differences between Russia and Ukraine in how the regimes developed, how their domestic politics on, say, historical memory, language, uh, citizenship, corruption, all of these things develop, it does, the escalatory cycle captures um, that phenomena, sort of the more Ukraine pulled away for reasons, again, that had to do with domestic politics, the more Russia pushed, the more Ukraine pulled away more, the more Russia pushed. So that's how this concept of escalatory cycle came in. Maybe Maria will remind me other reasons why we thought about it, but I don't think we were explicitly sort of, you know, thinking, ah, like that particular concept is not addressed in other work. It was more sort of accurate but sh- and short description of what we were trying to argue. Exactly. We were really trying to capture how the relationship between Russia and Ukraine, rather than the broader uh, West-Russia relationship, was much more important to how the divergence between the two countries happened, which set them on this collision course uh, eventually. And and so the escalatory uh, cycle tries to capture the response that each country had domestically to the behavior of the other country in in terms of domestic domestic politics. Let's go back to the beginning of this cycle. And it's very interesting how you point out the similarities between the two nations' starting points. They both had popular Soviet-era presidents, but the divergence, the original divergence, was that Yeltsin and the people around him had these economic liberal ambitions, while Kravchuk focused on state building and was economically very conservative. Was this the original sin, you think, that led to this escalatory cycle? The the economic uh, differences uh, were one side of it, but we think really the the core divergence, uh, the core trigger of this divergence is this different understanding um, between uh, Russia, in, now independent Russia and independent Ukraine about what Uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union really meant uh, politically. And what we argue is that in Russia, it was a perceived 
more as uh, a reinvention of common statehood, uh, recognition that the Soviet Union uh, didn't work as an institution, eventually um, you know, Yeltsin, of course, participated in disbanding it, but his uh, intention was really to figure out a way to reinvent common statehood. Uh, whereas the Ukrainians really perceived the end of the Soviet Union as this civilized divorce, as the end of common statehood. And it is this misunderstanding or this misalignment in understanding uh, that uh, to us had uh, significant downstream effects because the two countries were sort of proceeding with different assumptions I agree absolutely with this. I think the um, original sin, as you put it, is uh, not so much in the differences um, with with regard to approach to economic reforms, like Yeltsin, um, who wanted to move fast, and Kravchuk, who didn't. I think it is really, as Maria is saying, um, the misunderstanding about what was the collapse of Soviet Union all about. And I think it was misunderstanding. Another another interesting thing that we talk about um, in the book is how um, in Russia themselves, like they just were flabbergasted uh, by the fact that even um, political elites in Ukraine who were Russian-speaking, you know, members of the Communist Party before, very recently, uh, still were committed. And Kravchuk is one such such example. Well, he actually was Ukrainian-speaking, but many around him and the second president was a Russian speaker who would then write a book, Ukraine is not yet Russia. Um, or rather, not, not yet Russia, he'll write a book, Ukraine is not Russia. And that's the title of the book by the second president of Ukraine, um, that they uh, really meant, you know, yes, economic cooperation, yes, other types of, um, uh, you know, cooperation with Russia, but not a common polity. And I think in Russia, um, even among the liberals, again, doesn't mean that they were going to march with the guns into Ukraine then and there, but there was sort of this... Um, perception or expectation or hope that that's just a temporary phase, that one way or the other, we are going to be back together again. And that was very deeply held. And we actually were quite surprised when we were doing research that, um, you know, repeated uh, quotes even from Russian liberals in the Yeltsin circle, how they just, you know, didn't see it the same way as Maria said, um, that Kravchuk said who in the um, end of the 1991, uh, when they're meeting in Belavieja with Yeltsin and uh, the chairman of the Supreme Soviet of Belarus to dissolve the Soviet Union. And Kravchuk says this is civilized divorce. Um, this Commonwealth of Independent States is formed, which, um, again, uh, Yeltsin, I think at the time, and many Russians believed would ultimately consolidate into something more like a common polity again. But that was not uh, how Ukrainian leadership saw it. Yeah, actually, you quote a Russian official telling Western diplomats not to bother building embassies in, in Kiev. Yes. <laughs> they would soon be downgraded to consulate. So that you make that very clear. That seems to have been the, the, the attitude at the time. Ukraine's democratic development has been stumbling, uh, to, to put it mildly, and it's been endangered many times. You identify this, this concept of, quote, an informal grand bargain between the nationalist right and the centre, which is a really good explanation for why Ukraine has really was able to muddle through those first uh, 20 years of democracy. Could you explain that concept and really how you first came across it? 
Um, so first of all, I should say, and we do credit it in the book, the, the term itself is not something that we coined. Um, it has been uh, mentioned and used by scholars, um, in particular Andrew Wilson and his work. We cite his book in our work. Mm-hmm. And I think what Grand Bargain helps to understand um especially, again, and this is how we leverage this concept in our book, is this kind of peculiar phenomena that even the Russian-speaking, sort of Russia-friendly Ukrainian political elites actually are very committed to Ukrainian independence from the very beginning and pursue policies that seem from the outside maybe a little bit um, unusual, that, for example, uh, coming uh, to um, power with the agenda of, say, making Russian second state language or promising closer ties to Russia. But once they're in power, they don't deliver these things because they realize if you go down that path, it actually could potentially um, weaken or dilute Ukrainian statehood and they stick with this more explicitly Ukrainian nation-building policy in alliance with the right. So this sort of center-right bargain, it's a bargain between, on the, on the one hand, um, the political forces on sort of center-right part of the spectrum, including kind of more nationalist forces committed ideologically to Ukrainian independence, to um, um, Ukrainianization, um, concerned about legacies of Russification, and then this Russified center, uh, which oftentimes included all sorts of oligarchs, uh, former Communist Party senior officials and the like, who also want to rule independent state. So that's sort of this, you know, the way we explain it, the grand, use the grand bargain in, in our work. It is really um, this bargain that underlined Ukraine pursuing a distinct course. Now, did it contribute uh, or does it help to explain um, the sustained political competition in Ukraine? Yes, because these groups, even though they shared um, their um, desire to be elite of an independent state as opposed to some sort of Russian province or any kind of subordinate political formation, they really disagreed um, about the democracy in particular. So, for example, the center, the political elites on the center, they had no problem manipulating elections and things like that. But they, again, because of this um, grand bargain kind of uh, competition slash cooperation, were pressured um, by their sometimes allies um, on the right, and the same goes for the political right. So again, if, say, they had outright majority, could they have potentially behaved more autocratically? Possibly. I think that's a question that we can't really answer, uh, because again, this this is also, we're talking about political group that wanted to be closely integrated with the West. So I think the West would have played some moderating role as far as any possible autocratization. But the fact, the fact that these groups competed, cooperated and competed with each other certainly created um, political pluralism in Ukraine that um, distinguished it from Russia um, and sustained this political competition, even though not all of the actors were ideologically committed to democracy. So I think that's important um, for democracy as well, to your question, Tim. And by by contrast, you talk about how in Russia, the oligarchs, uh, and this is a quote, dominated the political process at the expense of the the creation of parties, which could represent the uh, ideological spectrum. And you also stress how potential competitors to Putin or someone like him lacked a base and were all basically Yeltsin's creatures. And it is very striking that no one in Russia ever emerged from national politics or emerged from from the parliament. Do you think this was a failure of the design of the Russian executive presidency compared to, say, the Ukrainian executive presidency? The 
underdevelopment of the party system in Russia is indeed something that played a role in hindering uh, democratic competition. Uh, and the super presidency did make a difference there because, um, because of course, uh, Yeltsin um, created a constitution uh, that very much concentrated power in the presidency. Uh, but it's also important to remember that Ukraine had the same uh, sort of debates about uh, the role of the presidency and and also for uh, for quite a while in the beginning was sort of coded as having a very strong or too strong presidency as well so so I don't think the the story is fully institutional it's it also has a lot to do with how uh, the early standoff um, between Yeltsin and the opposition ended up being resolved by Yeltsin bombing parliament in 1993. Uh, that really was a precedent uh, that pointed towards concentration of power at the expense of uh, compromise uh, among uh, political opponents. Whereas in Ukraine, the early uh, precedent in the early 90s was indeed uh, the forging of compromise between the president, uh, Kravchuk, and uh, parliament early elections. So things diverged uh, very early on, even though the institutional structure was uh, that both countries started with was quite similar. One of the things I really liked about the book was the the counterfactuals, the what ifs, and you, on several occasions throughout the book, you stress how the divergences and the clear divorce that you write about were not inevitable. The depressingly plausible scenario is that both countries could have taken an autocratic route like Russia or like Belarus. Do you think, looking back, there's any way that Russia could have stuck to the liberal course that was set by, by Yeltsin or Nemtsov or Chubais or Qaeda? So that's something that we uh, thought about a lot and discussed a lot. Uh, was there a way uh, for Russian liberals to have consolidated um, a bigger and grown potentially? And we thought about different ways in which the the development could have turned out differently if uh, Yeltsin had uh, called elections earlier, if uh, um, if maybe some kind of compromise was forged in uh, in 93 and the bombing of parliament were avoided. Uh, but I think ultimately uh, what we end up uh, arguing is that the liberal camp was really quite small uh, in terms of the the number of uh, the proportion of uh, of the of Russian society whose support it could count on, and and so um, and so it's difficult to to think of a way in which really the liberals could have come to uh, dominate the political spectrum and and could have developed a democracy further. But what is possible to think about is a potential uh, counterfactual in which. Uh, some level of political competition was maintained 
for longer. And and what we argue is that if political competition was maintained uh, longer, it would have uh, allowed a debate about how to uh, frame the relationship with Ukraine. And even even though uh, even the liberals, many among them, uh, also saw Ukraine in sort of these imperialist uh, terms as belonging uh, to Russia's sphere of influence, uh, they might have had different uh, ideas about how to accomplish that. Um, you know, there was talk about a liberal empire where Russia would become uh, such an attractive uh, economic, uh, dynamic economy with uh, with freedom of enterprise, at least, that, that, um, that uh, the um, other former Soviet states like Ukraine would be attracted and would want to sort of hitch their wagons uh, to the Russian one. Uh, But that didn't actually happen because the liberals, uh, in fact, lost uh, their clout uh, quite quickly. Okay, I'll just add to it that also when we were thinking through the counterfactuals, um, part of the motivation was to not to make this sort of um, simplistic, overly deterministic argument that, you know, Russia has been, an, you know, autocracy for many centuries, it was bound to be an autocracy. So it's not just, especially because the book focuses so much on developments in domestic politics, we did want to kind of pause and draw attention uh, on these various contingencies on sort of things, you know, points in time where things could have potentially gone the other way, but they didn't and why. So in a way, um, just to uh, second everything that Maria said, but just to add, for example, um, when Yeltsin uh, or Gorbachev is in power in Russia, right, it goes against this tradition of many centuries of uh, authoritarianism. Um, So it was, uh, and then, you know, these leaders were in various ways very consequential. So again, thinking about, like we mentioned in the book, uh, for example, had Yeltsin appointed somebody else other than Putin um, as his successor. Uh, had he appointed Nemtsov, we go over the evidence why that was didn't happen and you know maybe in hindsight wasn't super likely, but it was a possibility. And then again, as Maria said, no, Russia wouldn't have become a model democracy overnight, but um, there is a, a realistic possibility that political competition could have lasted longer, that authoritarianism could have been weaker, that it wouldn't turn into this personalistic autocracy where one person could make this kind of decision as an invading a neighboring country. Um, so these are the kinds of things that we wanted to draw attention to um, in the book in, with these um, counterfactuals. And I will I will come up with two more of them because they're, they're so interesting. So the, the first one you identify, you, you, you identify the, the, the first really decisive rupture as the 2004 Orange Revolution. I was really struck once again, I mean, I remember it, but reading your book, at how clumsy and heavy-handed the Russians and Yanukovych were. Do you think an unpoisoned Yushchenko would have been as West-oriented or as in favour of changing Ukraine's historical memory as as the poisoned Yushchenko? I don't think his poisoning made him particularly different. I mean, because the agenda that he campaigned with, and this again, and this is why when we talk about how in Ukraine public opinion has been evolving, and if Ukraine starts with majority of the population, maybe somewhat more Russia-leaning than West-leaning in the early 90s, 
by 2004, there is actually now a slight majority leaning the other way. And that's the majority that was voting for Yushchenko. So I think his agenda, kind of more decisive westernization, um, at least on that front, I think was supported by slim majority at the time. That's how he wins the election. And I think he was committed to that. And also his, um, you know, other sets of policies that at the time when he was president, maybe did not yet have majority support, like his um, attempts to um, revise historical memory politics a certain way, um, in part, like there is some support for it, but not um, maybe uh, full support yet. So I personally don't think that his um, poisoning had made led to the changes um, in his agenda. Uh, but I think the very fact that he was poisoned uh, shows how high the stakes were, um, that victory of someone like him was completely unacceptable um, to you know, the groups, and we don't know to this day who's behind this poisoning. This is actually one of these mysteries um, of Ukrainian Russian politics. There has been speculation that Russia has been behind it um, through the Ukrainian security service and so forth. We, we don't really know. But I think the fact that the stakes were so high um, at this, um, what was, we are arguing, the book was one of the first critical junctions when Russian and Ukrainian domestic politics um, diverges quite dramatically. Um, is, uh, is telling as to how, again, um, um, what Ukraine was doing uh, was very consequential and how the fact that it, you know, Yushchenko wanted to move it more decisively in this pro-Western direction was very unacceptable to certain, you know, actors in Russia, most likely. Yeah, I would agree with uh, uh, with uh, Oksana's points here uh, fully. I think for, for us, the the role of the poisoning in the counterfactual is that if he had died from the poisoning, which was uh, possible uh, given the serious condition he was in, um, or if he had been completely incapacitated and not been able to stand in the election, then then um, things could have turned out very differently for Ukraine because uh, it's highly unlikely that he could have been replaced that late in the uh, in the campaign by someone uh, viable who could have gotten uh, this narrow victory that he got. And, and so it would have led to Yanukovych's uh, election, most probably, and to an opportunity for Yanukovych to start building an authoritarian uh, regime in Ukraine as early as 2005. And we know that he attempted this in 2010. In 2005, it likely would have been easier. Um, so, uh, so the counterfactual of the Orange Revolution ending with uh, a Yanukovych presidency is really uh, a quite plausible move uh, by Ukraine towards uh, a Belarus-style uh, um, dictatorship, which uh, would have had a much easier time cooperating uh, with Russia, and and so it would it could have been a, a very different fork in the road. Yes, and as you point out, when Yanukovych actually did become president, he was so brazenly corrupt and and lacking in political skill. That it effectively led to the to the Maidan revolution, but you also do think that had he been more skillful and less corrupt and and had just been more of a Kuchma, perhaps that he could have held back the tide. 
You know, Varev, you remember when we were during um, the Maidan in, in Kyiv at a conference with a group um, with Poners? They, um, there was a discussion in the group, sort of, you know, what's more likely the outcome, what should Yanukovych do? And one of our colleagues said, if Yanukovych asked me what to do when Maidan was going on, right, when there were people camped on the square, this colleague of ours said, my, my advice to Yanukovych would be do nothing. Do nothing because, you know, the fact that people are sitting on the square is not going to um, um, undermine, right, overthrow the regime. But of course, that's not what Yanukovych does. We go over it also in the book that um, there is, again, being sort of, of an autocrat or, or wannabe autocrat as he was, he does uh, act very um, heavy-handedly and not very skillfully, sort of this escalating repression, stepping back and escalating again, um, which eventually leads um uh, to this massive violence um, by his regime and ultimately then the implosion of his regime. So um, ha- would he have succeeded if he had been more skillful um, and less corrupt? Uh, I am not sure. Maria, maybe you jump in. I'm sort of still thinking on the on that particular part of the answer, but it, it reminded me that this conversation that we had, what should Yanukovych do? And he didn't do what our colleague was saying he should do. I think had he tried to wait out uh, mm-hmm. the protest um, as opposed to um, really stoking it uh, further and further with uh, with um, this uneven repression, um, he may have survived um, in office and he may have continued to slowly uh, erode uh, democratic um, achievements uh, in Ukraine. But it's it's tough to say he would have he would have uh, continued his mandate. But uh, in the next election, it is tough to see how he could have been uh, re-elected in a manipulated election. I think possibly, but uh, but it would have been another potential uh, fault line and another potential critical juncture in, in Ukraine's political uh, development. Yeah, just, just, just one sort of thought comes to mind that I wanted to add. The, this balancing act that Kuchma was doing during his presidency, um, again, it was possible in part um, because Kuchma was not sort of as authoritarian and as autocratic and not using the methods that made made him um, almost like untouchable in the West, right? So he had to be able to balance sort of Russia against the West. And that's possible as long as you act not as a sort of total autocrat. And what made it very difficult for Kuchma at the end of his tenure, and this is partly why he appoints Yanukovych as his desired successor, is this uh, murder of a journalist, investigative journalist, um, and then the sleek tapes that implicated Kuchma um, in the involvement in his murder. And that's when, you know, sort of the West kind of recoils from this. And Yanukovych, I think from the very beginning, was not particularly... Um, concerned or certainly willing to engage in the kind of acts like, say, arresting his main contender um, later, you know, in the two, after 2010, and again, acting in this much more kind of authoritarian manner. Um, and that made him more dependent on Russia also from earlier on. So he did, I think, to some extent, try to balance. But um, again, the more 
um, he was acting as a full-blown authoritarian, I think the harder it was to strike this balance between Russia and the West. And sort of Russia obviously didn't mind supporting this kind of president um, as long as, again, he was doing what Russia wanted um, in foreign and domestic politics, which Yanukovych was to much greater extent than any of the earlier presidents. But then again, then he faces opposition from this part of pro-democratic Ukrainian society. Uh, So consolidating autocracy in Ukraine has been a very hard um, task. And Yanukovych ultimately fails fails at it. But uh, the counterfactuals we go through that Maria already mentioned, that at least hypothetically, it was possible he could have succeeded had 2004 turned out differently, had he reacted differently to the Maidan mobilization. Neither of these things happened. um, And then he ends up being overthrown. Um, But again, if we're thinking about what could have been different, these were the kinds of turning points when, hypothetically at least, um, Ukrainian political trajectory could have become more like Russia's. Well, I mean, we've covered the volatility of politics over the last three decades, but what was very interesting in the book was through all that volatility, there was this steady expansion of use of the Ukrainian language and an acceptance among people who had Russian as a first language of sending their children to schools that that taught Ukrainian. Can you talk us through that and why it was that by 2019, 66% of Ukrainians said that they supported Ukrainian as the first state language? Yeah, maybe I'll start because I can bring a bit of a personal experience and kind of, um, you know, having grown up in Ukraine and still having family there. The um, You see, this is again goes to um, language as a, st- as a special acceptance or rejection of policy of state language has a lot to do with people's political attitudes to the Ukrainian statehood, and perhaps more to do with that than one's actual language practices. Because many in Ukraine, and I can even speak from kind of immediate friends and family, um, who in the Soviet period, um, gradually, over the course sometimes of several generations, uh, were Russified and were primarily functioning in Russian, and send their children to Russian schools, again, in large cities that that wasn't even a choice in the Soviet period for the most part, or in many cities it wasn't a choice. Once um, Ukraine becomes an independent state and they support it, and that was certainly the mood, in particular in the capital city, very important, some 80% Ukrainian speaking, Russian speaking, but um, very voting for kind of pro-Western, pro-independence parties, then the way these people reason, or many of them, again, I wouldn't say every single person, but many of them, is that, okay, so now, you know, we can still speak Russian at home, our children will still know Russian, but, you know, Ukraine is now um, a state language. It symbolizes Ukrainian statehood as an independent state, so it has its distinct language. And it's actually totally fine with us if our child goes to Ukrainian language school where they would become also proficient in Ukrainian, right? And we are not going to object to this, even though we continue to speak Russian. And I think this phenomena of many Russian speakers continuing to speak Russian, but accepting Ukrainian language symbolic so functioning as a state language, as a marker of state independence, and sort of seeing a benefit to their children becoming proficient in Ukrainian language in an independent Ukrainian state is something that was completely misunderstood in Russia. So we we have this repeated evidence coming from the Russian elites um, and statements that would say, well, 70% of the population, or whatever number they would give, usually inaccurate, but still, speak Russian, and here they are being oppressed by these, you know, Ukrainian as a state language policy, but this is not how many people felt. And Ukrainian state was actually quite careful, because if we look at, for example, at statistics on 
uh, Ukrainization of schools, it actually varied quite a bit by region. So yes, Ukrainian was a state language, schools were switching from teaching Russian and Ukrainian, but there was quite a lot of variation in regions where, say, fewer people were um, happy with it. There was um, slower Ukrainization and so forth. But I think this phenomena that people forming their attitude to language, not based on their own linguistic practice, but based on their attitude and support for independent Ukrainian state and seeing language as a symbol of that um, independence, and therefore not objecting and supporting this policy, even as they continue to speak Russian, I think is a very important sort of feature of Ukrainian post-Soviet society that we explain, try to explain in the book, that I think is misunderstood both in Russia and even by many people in the West who kind of latch on to this, like, oh, you know, Russian speakers in the south and east of Ukraine because they're Russian speakers, they have to want these various Russia kind of favorite policy, which most of them don't. So that's something that we wanted to highlight um, in our analysis. Well, coming right up to date, you are very scathing in your arguments about those who think that the Russians were forced into their 2014 and 2022 invasions by NATO's enlargement. And I hadn't come across this term Westplaining before that you mentioned in the book. So can you talk us through your, your argument for why the Westplaining argument for NATO imperialism is wrong, in your view. Westplaining is this uh, new term which, uh, of course, uh, plays off of the mansplaining uh, <laughs> term that's more familiar. Um, and the idea behind it is that um, some in the West um, have taken to this practice of commenting on uh, what is good for uh, Eastern Europe, what is uh, what Ukrainians uh, should and shouldn't do, uh, including also interpreting uh, Russia's positions from a fully Western perspective without actually deep knowledge of uh, what the Eastern European or the Russian perspective is, and with um, sort of of a, a sleight of hand dismissing uh, what the local uh, positions uh, may be. And, and this West Planning has really led to a situation in which the entire conflict is viewed from, uh, from a Western uh, assumption perspective, which, which simply allows um, no agency either for uh, Russia or for Ukraine in this. So in the case of the denial of uh, agency for Ukraine, the assumption is that um, Ukraine has always been part of Russia's sphere of influence. So um, there is zero attention paid to the fact that Ukrainian uh, public opinion has changed, uh, that Ukrainian society is now united behind a different goal, and any... Um, like any uh, country has the reason, uh, has the right to self-determination, they've chosen a different goal. On the Russian side, the West planning basically uh, assumes that Russia has no other options available to it but to react aggressively uh, to uh, this change in its neighborhood without any consideration for the options that are available to Russia as well. It could think, well, things have changed. Uh, Ukraine is drifting away from us. What can we do 
to actually, how could we bridge this uh, disagreement with Ukraine? What can we do differently uh, than um, than just invade uh, as a reaction to this? So, so, uh, so that's a big uh, part of the West planning, sort of a lack of interest in the local. Uh, perspectives and the local way of interpreting the situation and an imposition of a Western framework um, on it. There are increasing signs. Uh, You see it in the U.S. uh, House of Representatives votes, in the prank call that was made to Georgia Maloney. The practical support for Ukraine to drive Russian forces out of eastern Donbass and Crimea is starting to fade. So can I ask you two questions? How and when do you think the war will end? And two, and this is something I picked up from Owen Matthews' book, Overreach. He suggests that if there is to be a settlement which left any of the conquered land in Russian hands, that there could be a nationalist backlash, and he refers to a potential nationalist Maidan. So could I ask you to address those two questions? Um, Maybe I'll start. Um, I was quite honestly, um, when when we uh, looked at the question, and you call it nationalist Maidan, I was like, whoa. What do we mean by nationalists, right? We have um, a situation in Ukraine, if we look at the opinion polls, where um, for now over 80% of the population considers um, territorial concessions to Russia unacceptable. We can go into reasons why. So if there is, um, uh, if say a government were to be forced, strong-armed by the West, um, say threatened with withdrawal of support into some kind of settlement, it wouldn't just be the nationalists um, opposing it, but literally, you know, more than two thirds of the population. So I just kind of want to, you know, um, mention that because I think when we use the term nationalist, for many people, it is something kind of relatively radical, kind of minority. But in Ukraine, it's actually majority opinion that territorial concession for Russia is unacceptable. And this is exactly sort of goes um, to the broader question um, in in the uh, possible settlement and what would be the kind of settlement that would achieve uh, long-lasting peace. And um, given that Putin's um, objective with regard to Ukraine extends past any possible sliver of territory, it is really rejection of Ukrainians' right to exist as a sovereign nation and to pursue the policy that their domestic process produces that may be not the policies that Russia likes, and Putin has objected on multiple occasions, again, not just to NATO expansion or sort of Ukrainian security arrangements, but literally to Ukrainian local government reform, <clears throat> to Ukrainian um, policy on language and history and any kind of uh, other matter that is considered, you know, by purely a matter of domestic politics. Uh, so that's why um, I think um, a, a settlement that would reward him with some territory of Ukraine, um, be it what he controls now or some part of it or some little bit bigger part, is not going to end this conflict. It may delay it. Um, it would buy Russia time. Um, to regroup, to rearm, um, and um, again, to try to achieve the objective as, Putin's, as Putin has defined it, which literally means vassalization of Ukraine. Um, if it is 
to exist at, on the map at all, or potentially full absorption of whatever you know they can manage um, into Russia because Ukrainians um, are not a separate nation according to Putin. Um, so um, that's um, I mean I I, I don't want to I mean Maria has I'm sure things to say to that, but I think it's important at this point, and it's also um, it takes it back to our book that what are really the goals here? It is not protection of Russian speakers. It is not control of any part of territory. It is really this rejection of Ukrainian statehood and nationhood and Ukrainians' right to determine their own affairs in their own state that is behind this war and therefore a settlement that doesn't address this um, is not going to produce a lasting peace, even though it might produce some temporary pause and fighting and um, you, uh, these kinds of shorter term outcomes. I absolutely uh, agree with all of this. What I, what I want to take on is a bit uh, the question of where uh, the Western aid uh, is going and where Western public opinion uh, might be going on Ukraine. And um, although uh, for sure there are worrying uh, signs, I think there is a bit of a cyclical uh, nature to these calls for uh, for negotiations and for a settlement. Um, we've seen those before in, uh, in significant waves. Uh, but, uh, but once uh, these proposals come up and they're sort of thought uh, through, uh, many in the West realize that this is just not, the West is really not in a position to uh, stop this war uh, because uh, the reason the war continues is that Russia's goals remain unchanged. Um, so we've seen in previous cycles that after some discussion of can we stop this now, can we find some settlement, uh, we've actually seen uh, increases in uh, Western aid. And, um, and, and I think the, the signals are uh, somewhat mixed, um, not all pointing towards uh, end of uh, aid. We saw, for example, that Germany has announced that its uh, aid budget to Ukraine will double uh, for next year from uh, four to eight billion. Um, obviously, there is concern about a potential Potential Trump victory in in the U.S., but that may not materialize uh, in the West, in in the U.S. Um, in terms of public opinion. Uh, the tide hasn't really turned uh, dramatically. There is still a lot of support for um, for aid to Ukraine. It's the political dysfunction that is uh, now putting it on hold, but it's not a guarantee that it won't be, that the White House won't find a way to uh, work through this. So I think it's it's perhaps, um, it's always the time to worry about it, but it's perhaps too early uh, to conclude that um, aid will necessarily be winding down. Um, and, um, you know, it Ukraine has uh, achieved uh, some successes on the uh, battlefield in the counteroffensive. It has managed to really uh, degrade Russia's naval capabilities um, in the Western Black Sea. Uh, there can be uh, positive effects from this. Uh, there already are in terms of restarting the grain trade without uh, Russia's cooperation. But... Um, 
sort of Russia's hold on Crimea is becoming increasingly uh, tenuous and uh, we may see uh, hopeful developments in that direction. So I would hold off on on thinking about how this ends because um, and what kind of settlement is a possible end because I don't think... I think it's clear that Russia doesn't want an end. And as much as the West kind of would like this to happen, there's also uh, realism that it's not it's not really possible to end it uh, quickly. I mean, compared to expectations of what Ukraine would be able to achieve in February 22, what Ukraine has achieved is an extraordinary victory. Ukraine is now a candidate for European Union membership. It's going to be a de facto member of NATO and probably an actual member of NATO, and almost certainly as part of any settlement. Could you comment on that? Yeah, I think what you're mentioning, I think that, that again, especially in the current, um, you know, immediate sort of last month, give or take, given that Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, has not produced this large breakthrough that um, many uh, hoped or um, you know, expected, I think it is very easy to forget uh, this incredible accomplishment that Ukraine mm-hmm. had achieved both on and off the battlefield, given that in February. Um, the discussion was not whether Kiev would fall, but when, and would it take Russia, you know, a few a few days, a few weeks to essentially take over Ukraine, and not only the army was able to beat back um, the invasion and liberate more than half of the territory that um, Russia captured, uh, but also the state survived, not only survived, but was able to function um, anything from, you know, trains running to the post office delivering to, um, you know, people getting uh, and the economy retooling, there was even some economic growth better than expected. And now that Ukraine is in the European Union, um, or rather, Ukraine is on the way to the European Union, and um, that is another big, um, big impetus um, for reforms. So I think all of these things are, um, if we're trying to sort of keep uh, all the pieces of this big uh, moving picture in mind, I think that is definitely uh, needs to be kept in mind. And again, this is something that um, unfortunately this war unfolds not only on the battlefield, but also in the information space. And I think the narratives about how, you know, Ukraine has lost and the West is going to give up and let's, um, you know, have some sort of quick settlement and uh, hope against all evidence that it would produce lasting peace. Um, A lot of it is kind of information warfare that I think we should also be mindful um, of when when we're discussing this this war. One thing that I wanted to add to tie this uh, to uh, the argument that we make in the book is that uh, what we've after we trace this divergence uh, over the last 30 years between the two states, we arrive at uh, the conclusion that the full-scale invasion really produced sort of a final rupture uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Um, So there is really no going back to uh, any possibility for Ukraine to be tied back to Russia. So the only way that the war really can end is with Ukraine, hopefully in its full territory, but with Ukraine in 
um, fully integrated into uh, into the West uh, as a member of the EU as and as a member of NATO. And and the question is sort of how uh, this can be achieved and and how quickly it can be achieved. But that's the only way in which uh, this this war really can end. Okay, well, to close the podcast, as usual, I've asked today's guest to recommend a couple of books to listeners, usually one from their field and one personal choice. So, uh, Maria, what have you chosen? So, um, building on this uh, idea that that Ukraine is uh, moving uh, towards EU membership, I want to recommend Milada Vakhudova's book on how Eastern European... Eastern Europe joined uh, the EU. It's called Europe uh, Undivided. And um, as a personal choice, I would recommend uh, Ola Khnatyuk's uh, book on uh, Lviv called Courage and Fear. Um, not only a very informative book, but a really uh, great read. Uh, thank you. And Oksana? Yes, um, I have also two recommendations for kind of more scholarly uh, book that's um, very, I think, informed um, my thinking, certainly um, when we were writing the book with Maria, is this classic uh, in the study of nationalism, Ernst Gellner's Nations and Nationalism. And why I think it's so important is because it really drives home and explains how today's modern nations are not some ancient, you know, um, constructs or groups that existed from time immemorial, but how they were formed and shaped at a certain historical period in time. And that's, I think, is critical to understanding um, Russia-Ukraine um, dynamics, because Putin remains, I mean, I think he should read that book, if you ask me, because his whole notion that Russia is like a real nation and Ukraine is a fake nation really flies in the face of all the scholarship of nationalism. And Ernst Gellner's book um, really unpacks that kind of from the theoretical perspective, how really nations are constructed and reconstructed. Um, and, you know, Ukrainian nation has been formed and is in formation, and so is Russian, and so is any other. And I think that book really helps to understand that. Um, and as a personal choice, um, I would recommend and a, a book called In Isolation by Stanislav Asyev. Um, and he is um, a Ukrainian um, Donbass-born journalist who has been reporting on developments in Donbass, um, kind of really ground, bottom-up perspective, what was happening there when um, this um, separatist insurgency started. So, of course, the war with Russia and Ukraine goes back to 2014. And um, a big starting point um, was developments in Donbass where um, Russia kind of fostered and intervened and supported um, this um, anti-Kiev insurgency, but of course there were also local people who um, were swept in it and supported it, and Zaseyev, who was reporting from Donbass um, in these short dispatches, he was actually reporting clandestinely, clandestinely until he was found out and arrested and spent more than two and a half years in this notorious prison camp in Donbass, um, really captures kind of this um, um, almost absurdity of the moment um, in Eastern Ukraine um, in 2014 to 2016. Um, so I think that would really give also a perspective of kind of diversity and complexity and um, of what was happening um, in that part of Ukraine and how people were reacting to these circumstances that were very shocking. Today I've been talking to Maria Popova and Oksana Shebel about Russia and Ukraine, Entangled Histories, Diverging States, published today by Polity. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you.